On this week's edition of New York Now, New York braces for the U.S. Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade. We'll tell you what's happening and what could be next. Plus, how does Congressman Antonio Delgado's new position as a candidate for lieutenant governor shake up this year's elections? Anna Gronwald from Politico and David Lombardo from the Capitol Press Room are here to break it all down. Then... Harry Wilson wants to be the Republican Party's nominee for governor in New York this year. He joins us in studio to chat about crime and more. And later, a new edition of On the Bill. I'm Dan Clark, and this is New York Now. Today, the Senate majority will pass legislation. I will fight like hell for you every single day, like I've always done and always will. Welcome to this week's edition of New York Now, I'm Dan Clark. We start this week with a short history lesson on abortion in New York. Until three years ago, abortion was actually part of New York's criminal law. It was legal, but in a sort of roundabout way. It goes back to 1970, when New York first lifted its ban on abortion. It was one of only two states to do so at the time. But before that, abortion was a crime in New York. And instead of taking it out of the criminal law, Lawmakers left it in and largely just carved out when it would be legal. And at the time, that was a really big deal. The first freestanding abortion center in the country opened in Syracuse that year. Then, three years later, the U.S. Supreme Court legalized abortion nationwide under Roe v. Wade. And for the next five decades, not much changed in New York. That was until three years ago in 2019. Democrats in New York were worried at the time that Roe v. Wade would be overturned by the Supreme Court. So they passed a bill that basically enshrined Roe v. Wade into state law and took it out of the penal code. That means that if the Supreme Court overturns Roe, which we now know is on the table this year, abortion will still be legal in New York. And because of that, Democrats are now expecting people to start coming here from out of state to get an abortion. So the state is setting aside $35 million to support abortion providers and expand access. Governor Kathy Hochul this week. We'll keep playing offense. It's uh, where I'm most comfortable on the playing field, uh, being aggressive on these issues. And we'll do whatever it takes to defend the rights of not just New York women, but women all across this nation. New York will be there. And we're now expecting the legislature to do more on abortion this year, plus some new political developments. Let's get into it with Anna Gronwald from Politico and David Lombardo from the Capitol Press Room. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. So we have uh, three or four, three weeks of the legislative session left, I think, after this. It's all approaching very quickly. Abortion seems to be the topic that Democrats can come together on right now. That seems to be one of the very few things that they can agree on that they want to protect access to New York. Anna, what does it look like in terms of what they're going to do in the next few weeks. Do we know anything about what they're going to do? There's been a number of bills proposed that would uh, expand access in ways that would allow more financial resources to individuals even coming from out of state because abortion in New York is already fairly um, available and it will probably stay that way. But um, as the governor and legislature have suggested, they want that to be a thing that they can offer to people maybe from other states if it should change in their regions. Um, So whether or not they'll get some of these pieces of legislation done 
always remains to be seen, but it does seem to be something that everyone can rally around and it might provide them some cover from doing some things that they don't want to do. Right, that's that's what I was gonna ask you. Does this seem to be the end of session issue now? It, like there were a lot of things on the table, but abortion seems to be the thing that Democrats, as we said, can come together on, whereas something like maybe crime, they can't come together on. Does this seem to be maybe a placeholder for other issues that might have put them in some political hot water if they had gone forward? Absolutely, it's an election year and there's always a little bit of an energy lag after the budget is passed. Um, so there are a couple of things that they need to do. Um, they, if they are going to extend mayoral control of New York City schools, that's something that they would need to do before the end of session, a few other things like that. But this seems to be the major issue and if you can get all eyes on something everyone agrees on, what a beautiful way to end. Exactly. Uh, Dave, I want to go to you on politics. So abortion is, a, is, is popular in New York. I, I think that it's fair to say that most New Yorkers do not want to see Roe v. Wade overturned in terms right. of polling. So, but my question for you is, is that enough to put Democrats in a better position politically this year? Well, running on that issue that you brought up is something that will benefit Democrats, but it's more complicated when you think about abortion in different senses. When you talk about late-term abortion, when you talk about when you're going to make money available for out-of-state abortions, those things might not poll as politically beneficial to Democrats. So it's going to be interesting to see now and Nove through now and November how they go about framing this issue, because how they frame it is really going to be important to whether it actually is beneficial to them. If I'm the Republicans, I'm trying to make this not just about Roe v. Wade, but about other things, such as uh, the cost of actually rising, uh, raising a child in, in New York, which is becoming more and more expensive uh, every day. Maybe not the fault of New York Democrats, but that's the framing I'm focusing on. So Democrats have a real tight tight, tight, tight rope they have to walk here, but it could be advantageous, especially in the suburbs where Kathy Hochul really needs to run up the score if she wants to have a, a big victory in November. Right, to me, I see this issue as very important to voters, obviously, but I don't know if it necessarily is more important than top issues like crime and cost of living. Like, I don't know if you get to November as Kathy Hochul versus whoever the Republican nominee is, assuming that she wins the Democratic nomination. I don't know if you get to November and you swing the votes based on abortion. What do you think? Yeah, this is typically a federal issue. This isn't something we really think of on the state level because of, as Anna said, the broad protections and accessibility that we have in New York. So I think this is something where if I'm a member of Congress, if I'm a Senate candidate, not necessarily in New York, I'm gonna make a big deal about this. If I'm a member of the Assembly, if I'm a member of the State Senate, I don't think that argument about abortion resonates as much uh, with voters who think about this as a national issue, which it obviously is based on the Supreme Court ruling. Absolutely. And Anna, I should say before, I think in the next few weeks as we talk more and more about abortion in New York, I can already see fake things happening online. So are, are Democrats uh, considering any... Um, expansion to the state's access to abortion in terms of uh, weeks when it's allowed, instances when it's allowed, is that on the table at all? I don't know that there is a lot of movement on specific bills that would do that, um, but I don't think anything is out of the question. Yeah, I, I agree. I think there's a lot on the table, and the thing about this is because we have such uh, uh, progressive abortion laws in New York, there's not a lot more to do here. So it'll be interesting to see what happens when Democrats come together with a package if they do in the next couple of weeks. I want to turn to Congressman Antonio Delgado, which uh, we were off last week for the show, so I just want to bring this up now. So he's going to be the new lieutenant governor, and he's going to be the new candidate for lieutenant governor. And I want to ask you this first, Anna. Um, so do you think that changes the race for LG? How does it change it? We have the two candidates, Diana Reyna and Ana Maria Archila. Brian Benjamin had to resign, so now he's off the ballot. 
there's a lot that we could go through with that, but I won't rehash it. Um, do you think Delgado is a shoe in uh, at this point, I don't know that I would say anyone could be a shoo-in. Obviously, like he is running um, with the governor, but it is a separate election. People can choose of the three candidates that we have right now who they would like best. He's a great pick, though, and I think that he comes off. Um, he is charismatic. He is successful, and he has a lot of support now on a national level because, obviously, he's spent time in Congress. That comes also with resources. Mm. Um, so... I, I don't know how voters are feeling about him specifically right now, but he definitely has a solid um, campaign ahead of him and the support of the governor. Um, it, it seems like he has a pretty good shot and that changes the dynamics for the other two candidates. Dave, what does Delgado need to do in the next couple of weeks to win this primary? I don't know if he's necessarily all that known to voters. I don't think that they know Diana Reyna or Ana Maria Archila either. Right. So I could see as a Democrat, if, if I was a Democrat voting in the primary, I see these three names. I don't know who any of them are. It, it feels like I'm throwing a dart at a bullseye, <laughs> trying to figure it out. Right, and the thing about a Democratic primary like this is that it is mostly going to be highly engaged, highly active voters who aren't like your typical registered voters, so they might have a better chance of knowing these names. But what Delgado really benefits from is having the backing of the Democratic establishment, which is going to mobilize some of these informed voters, when they, whether they come from uh, the actual party apparatus, like at county level and city level, and they'll go out to vote, but also more importantly probably are these labor unions that are so connected to the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. And they're going to mobilize on his behalf basically without him even doing anything. That doesn't mean, though, that he can't travel around the state, uh, try to drive up votes in areas where uh, the establishment is going to be better received. I think in, in the Bronx, which has a large black voting population that's not necessarily as progressive as the black voting population in, in Brooklyn, is an area where he's going to want to focus on because uh, I think Anna Maria Archila is going to come at him from the, the left, Diana Reyna is going to come at him from the right, and, and there's a narrow gap where he can try to drive up the vote. So I think he's going to be hitting uh, the, all of New York uh, outside of the 19th Congressional District where he is known, but even that I think isn't uh, the best known person uh, in there. So yeah, and if I'm Antonio Delgado, I'm feeling pretty good, but I still need to go through the motions to make sure that I am Kathy Hochul's running mate in November. You know, we have 30 seconds left. Uh, I'll throw this one to you, Anna, just to end with. Um, they're both from upstate, Kathy Hochul and Delgado. I, Delgado is from upstate in my book. He has a Hudson Valley district. Does that hurt their chances? I think it depends on whether or not they can get out and get their names around downstate. I don't, I don't think that it is bad that they are from north of the Bronx, but I do think that um, they need to get to where voters are and they need to um, get their message out on the ground. And I don't know that they've necessarily broken through there yet. Yeah, I guess we'll see. Well, thank you both for being here. I appreciate it. Anna Grodel for Politico and David Lombardo from the Capitol Press Room on Public Radio. Thank you. All right, more now in this year's race for governor. Voters from both major parties will head to the polls in June to vote in this year's primary. And whoever wins in June will be their party's nominee in this year's race for governor. Republicans will have four choices on the ballot. Congressman Lee Zeldin, the party's favorite, Andrew Giuliani, son of former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani, former Westchester County Executive Rob Astorino, and businessman Harry Wilson. Now, Wilson is an outlier here. He's the most removed from politics out of the bunch, but he's popular in the Republican Party. He ran for state controller in 2010 and came closer to winning statewide than any other Republican has in two decades. And he's now out with a new crime plan. 
We sat down to go through that plan and hear more about how he got here. Harry, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. It's great to be here with you. Thank you. So you are new to our audience. I want to give you the chance to kind of introduce yourself. People might have seen you on TV from your ads that are out, but mm -hmm. uh, tell people who you are and why you're running for governor. Sure. So I grew up not far from here in Johnstown, New York, uh, halfway between Albany and Utica. My dad's parents and my mom all moved there from Greece. Wilson is a pure Ellis Island creation. I'm a first-generation Greek-American. Uh, we only spoke Greek at home when I was growing up, and so I didn't learn English until nursery school. Uh, Working-class family. My dad was a bartender at my uncle's restaurant in town, and my mom operated a sewing machine at a local factory. I was the first in my family to go to college. I was fortunate to, get, to go to Harvard and Harvard Business School. And then I went into business and I spent my career fixing failing companies, coming into situations where companies were in or near bankruptcy, where management had failed the people in the company and made terrible mistakes, and we came in to fix them. Uh, we've saved, over the course of nearly 30 years of doing that, hundreds of thousands of American jobs, mm. uh, and really made a big difference for those companies. And that's exactly the skill set I think we need in governor. I think we have the most failed institution in America in New York state government, and I think that turnaround skill set that we need to fix the state is what will benefit all 20 million New Yorkers if we can, uh, if I can get elected in, in November. It's a unique perspective because none of the other candidates that are running have that kind of trajectory in terms of career. Everybody else has either, you know, been in politics or, or not really been in a, a specific industry like that. It's an interesting perspective. But I do want to talk to you. I want to start with your crime plan that is mm -hmm. new out in May. Um, it, it's a, it's comprehensive, uh, more than other candidates have put out for sure. And it has four steps that are broken down into smaller steps. So the first one that I want to start with is cashless bail, because mm -hmm. that's obviously the hot topic of the election. I think crime is on the, the minds of voters. We see it in the polls. So your plan, you want to end cashless bail, which isn't necessarily uh, unique among Republicans. Uh, you want judges to be able to determine what's called dangerousness, mm -hmm. uh, somebody's perceived threat to public safety. I want to ask you from your perspective, because some people will say dangerousness may be a slippery slope for some, some people. So in your plan, in your mind, how would you define when somebody is dangerous and when somebody is not? Sure. So I think it's, it's really important to think about uh, kind of how we've gotten to this place where we have much higher crime rates than we did just a few years ago. Yeah. And I believe an important contributor to that has been the so-called bail reform laws that were passed. And you know the, the beautiful thing about democracy is we have 49 other states to compare New York's results to. And so what we know in those 49 other states uh, virtually all of them have judicial discretion around bail. Right. And we also know that every single other state and the federal government all allow for a dangerousness standard. And the reason for that, I think, is common sense, which is what are the reasons to keep someone who has been accused of, of a crime off the streets? There are generally two big ones. One is flight risk, um, and obviously, obviously the fact that they may flee justice, uh, but then also dangerousness. And that's why 49 other states and the federal government allow for that. So I don't, I don't think it should be as controversial as it's become. I think there's ideology that kind of clouds the, the common sense reality of the situation. Um, and I would leave it not to myself or a politician, but to the judges who have been you know, selected to, to be in that position. So you don't think there should be like a specific rubric of questions that they should ask? It should really be at the discretion of just the judges who can decide based on each case individually? Yeah, I think in general there is a excessive tendency by people in Albany to try to legislate everything. Yeah. And I believe what we should do is set clear rules of the road, broad principles, and allow people to, to operate within those principles. And then to the extent there are problems, we should address those. Um, and so I think that ends up being a far more um, effective way of running any organization is what I've done in my business career, but it's also far more fulfilling for the people in it. Um, and what ends up happening is people 
you know, develop good judgments and decisions, and to the extent there are issues, and you can reform those through training and, and, and uh, ways to address those. Now, how do you balance that with uh, the idea behind bail reform was to get rid of this system where you have some people who can pay to get out on bail, others are not, and then they're incarcerated pre-trial. How do you balance your idea to end cashless bail and have dangerousness with that idea of making the system more equitable, more fair? Sure. So when the, uh, when people raise the socioeconomic questions, one, I'm very sensitive to socioeconomic issues. I grew up in a working class family. We didn't have any money growing up. Right. And so I recognize that there are folks who are obviously in different, you know, kind of different means. But the, the standards shouldn't be about socioeconomic status. It should be about dangerousness. So if someone, whether they're poor or wealthy, if they're a threat to society while they're awaiting trial, that's where the judge's discretion should come in. Uh, and so that, that's why I kind of rely on that as opposed to whether someone's, you know, kind of where they are in the socioeconomic spectrum. And if you compare that with a speedy trial, which all Americans are entitled to, accused of a crime are entitled to, then I think you can address the problems that have happened in the past without throwing out the, the broader system. And the core problem was that we had some high-profile situations which were tragic and that had actually very little to do with, with bail, much more about a lack of a speedy trial. Mm. Uh, and what's actually happened, even though there have been some reforms around that, it's created an undue burden on prosecutors and defense attorneys. So now you hear from both sides that they're complaining about the discovery uh, changes, for example, that have made um, the access to a speedy trial more complicated, not less. So we've actually compounded the problem because we have politicians talking about sound bites as opposed to really trying to solve the problem. So what do you do about that speedy trial problem? Is it just about more funding for courts? Uh, making uh, one idea has been to create more judgeships. Uh, of course, that comes with infrastructure as well. Do you have any ideas on how to to make sure that everybody has a speedy trial so nobody is languishing in these jails. Sure. So I think there are a couple important issues. One is um, because of the changes in discovery uh, uh, rules, that's made it harder to get to a speedy trial. And so if we have, for example, materiality or reasonable standard, which is true in any kind of walk of life, right. whether it's a business deal or something, you say to yourself, is this a material? If it's not, then why spend time on it? And that's what in, what's happened um, with the change in the discovery statute. That's gone away. So that's made things more cumbersome. So I think fixing that so that we focus on that materiality reasonable standard would help. And the second part is staffing appropriately. Part of the reason we're running into problems on trials is because crime is up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you just have more people in the system. And so, you know, I think if we can kind of focus on the, you know, the 14-page plan that we have that kind of really, I believe, will reduce crime and recidivism and repeat offenders particularly, which are, I think are a core part of the problem, then we'll have fewer cases in the system. And if, but if it turns out that that's not fast enough, then you have to look at expanding the system to make sure that people get to a speedy trial. So you're against the defund the police movement. We're talking about funding, obviously. Uh, how, do you, how do you balance the defund the police movement with the need to have officers who are not treating people of color in a disproportionate way? Mm -hmm. Obviously, I think everybody wants to be treated equally. We want to respect members of law enforcement, but how do you make sure that you have both of those things? Yeah, so I think, you know, the it's important to look at the facts in New York State specifically. There are some horrible situations that have happened around the country. Yeah. There's been very little in New York State over the last decade. And that's a testament to the law enforcement leadership around the state who, you know, dealt with some problems that existed before that period of time and f invested in training and, and, and really kind of trying to make sure that did not happen. And so I think we've made great strides in New York in dealing with those issues, and that's why I think we lead other states, which I think is a terrific testament to those law enforcement leaders on, on, uh, across the state. Um, and you have to keep investing in training. Um, what's actually happened in certain um, 
agencies around the state is there's been a reduction in training because of budget cuts and because it hasn't kept pace with inflation. And so that's more likely to lead to a problem as opposed to doing what's actually been working for the past decade and investing in training. So that's one piece of it. Second piece of it, because of the hit to morale that's happened to police officers across the state, retirements and departures have accelerated dramatically and recruiting has gotten harder. So as a result, staffing has come down in, in most um, parts of the state, I think almost all parts of the state. And so that makes people, particularly in people in, in communities that are more, uh, have more crime, more at risk. Um, so I believe that there is a, you know, that, again, this kind of comes down to politics versus problem solving. I'm a problem solver, not a politician. And I think that politicians tend to kind of take one side of the debate. The answer is we've actually done a really good job in the state. Can we do better? Of course we can. And we should try to do better. But we should focus on how do we do better as opposed to just demonizing the other side and not trying to solve the fundamental problem. Part of your plan talks about breaking down these silos that we often have between uh, you know, members of law enforcement and mental health services and addiction services too. Uh, tell me what that would look like under your administration. How would you how would you make everybody work a little bit better together so we don't have these situations where people with a mental health issue aren't getting the help that they need? Yeah, absolutely. So um, let me give you an anecdote and I'll come back to the specific solution. So the sure. anecdote is when, I, when we interview, we interview tons of people across the state to build our crime plan, people on the front lines, law enforcement, prosecutors, defense attorneys. And well, one thing we heard very frequently is that uh, from a number of sheriffs was that their law enforcement, uh, their, the members of their team were forced to deal with mental health issues that they felt they, felt they weren't equipped to, to deal with. Mm -hmm. And it was a lose-lose. It was bad for the, uh, for the person in question. It was bad for the police officer. Um, and, and so to me, the way to deal with that is start at the top and create a, a little SWAT team that basically breaks down silos and kind of goes after looking at it systemically statewide. Where are the where are the uh, the handoffs, the drops, and handoffs uh, in coverage? Um, the biggest are crime to mental health to homelessness, and there's obviously a nexus for some portion of people across those. But there are a lot of people who are only one of those buckets, obviously. And so the question is, how, for people who who um, kind of spill across those various buckets. How do we make sure they're getting the services they need uh, at, a, at a state level and then kind of bringing it down to, to local, local um, uh, agencies? Sure. Uh, we want, you know, I think in general, I'm for bringing services as close to people as possible, so investing in local support, not at the state level, but we can have a statewide perspective that then brings in to drive those changes kind of locally. Uh, so that's where we'd start. I think at the end of the day, it'll end up being um, you know, creating enough of an infrastructure around mental health needs and homeless needs uh, that we kind of kind of augment the police as opposed to, you know, expect them to do something that they haven't necessarily been trained to do or is not really kind of in their, in their best wheelhouse. Uh, and I think that will be a, end up being a win-win both for the, for the people um, who need the services as well as people trying to help them. Now that ties into this conversation. Uh, the last question for you about Rikers Island. So an interesting part of your plan is you don't want to have these community jails in New York City. You say Rikers Island can be improved by investing in it, improving the infrastructure, putting more funding in. Tell me what that would look like. A lot of people, you know, Rikers Island is is not good. I mean, there's no other side to that. It's yes. just a bad place to be for everybody involved, Absolutely. for the correction officers, for the incarcerated people. So what would that look like? Yeah. So it's important to understand why did Rikers get as bad as it is? Well, because the de Blasio administration basically neglected it for eight years. They didn't invest in any improvements. And, and over eight years, that compounds. And so now you have, a, you have a, as you said, a total lose-lose. It's bad for everybody involved. Um, 
Now, in order, rather than admitting to the mistake and trying to rectify the mistake, which they should have done years ago, what the solution from the de Blasio administration was is create these community jails that no one wants and don't really solve the problem. And to give you an example of how misguided it is, right now there are between 5,000 and 5,500 inmates in Rikers today. The community jails have a capacity of about 3,000. Right. Well, what are we going to do with the 2,000 to 2,500 inmates who, who would not have a home uh, in that. Uh, and then when you think about the actual construction, there's like no outdoor space and there's no, there's nothing that would give, allow for the facilities and the resources that could be done in records if it was properly invested. So I believe it would actually be cheaper and better to invest in Rikers. Um, and, and by the way, the, these community jails couldn't be done for another five years or more in right. the best case scenario. So we're gonna have to invest in Rikers anyways. And the fact that we're not thinking about it more holistically and trying to address it in that way uh, is just, a, I think, people unwilling to admit their mistakes in the past. All right, very interesting plan, very comprehensive. Harry Wilson, Republican candidate for governor, thank you. Great to see you, Dan, thank you. Now, as we said, whoever wins the Republican nomination in June will go on to compete in the general election against whichever Democrat wins their primary. Polls show Governor Kathy Hochul as the favorite for that, but we won't know until after the primary. That election is scheduled again for June 28th. But moving on now to On the Bill, a segment where we tell you about a bill out of Albany that you might not hear about otherwise. This week, we're talking about A6943, also called A Place at the Table. It's a bill that nonprofits say would help more of them lobby lawmakers at the state capitol. Right now, only about 3% of nonprofits lobby. That's according to the National Council on Nonprofits. And that's partly because you have to register as a lobbyist in New York if you spend more than $5,000 on lobbying activities. And a lot of nonprofits don't have the time or the resources to do that. So the bill, A6943, would raise that threshold to $10,000 which would allow more nonprofits to lobby without the red tape. It's sponsored by Assemblymember Jessica Gonzalez-Rojas. Um, so many organizations and nonprofits in particular are reticent to lobby um, because of those barriers and because of those limits. And due to that, we are lacking the voices of people most impacted by the very policies that we create. So far, there doesn't seem to be a lot of momentum for the bill in the legislature, but lawmakers have three more weeks to consider it before the end of this year's legislative session. But we'll leave it there for this week. Thanks for watching this week's New York Now. Have a great week and be well. Funding for New York Now is provided by WNET.